So good morning again, everyone. Have you all had good weeks? Yeah, anything go horribly wrong? No? Well, that's good. Um, something did for me, but that, that in itself was a blessing, because I find whenever I'm preaching, uh, God normally allows uh, some comedy catastrophe to occur, which links very neatly with the passage that we have before us on the Sunday. This week was no exception. So Monday, uh, Kate and I um, were out with Clara, and it's my day off, and, uh, but we needed to get back, because I think some people were arriving, um, and we had to get a few groceries on the way. So we stopped at Sainsbury's in Burfham, and um, we went into the shops. Kate sort of played with Clara just by the entrance. I ran in, grabbed the few things we needed, uh, came out of the Sainsbury's, making our way to the car, at which point uh, Clara said, Daddy, pointing to the car key I had in my hand, and she wanted to press the button to open the car as she has learned how to do that. So I let her do that. Better to keep her happy than have her making a fuss. Uh, Kate put Clara into her car seat. Uh, I put the shopping into the boot of the car. She closed that door. I closed the boot door. And then we went to get in the front. Maybe you can guess what had happened. The doors were locked. We could not get in. And I then proceeded to try and coax Clara to press the right button to open the door. And I did this for about a minute or two. Um, the, the chaps who wash your cars there were somewhat distressed by this. They gathered around. And I was increasingly losing it. Um, and from what I recall, I started sort of pacing up and down, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? At which point, Kate came over and said, Tom, go over there. <laughs> Sent me away, told me to calm myself down. And about three seconds later, the door was open. So there we go, a true story which I think parallels very well the situation that we find in this passage with this metaphor. Let me explain that to you. This time we have an unfaithful wife instead of an incompetent husband. She's been separated from her children who were carted off to Babylon, whereas I was separated from Clara by the locked door. She, like me, has been sent away by her spouse and her children, like Clara, are trapped far away from home. I know Burfham's not that far, but it is if you can't drive home. So there we go. And what's the only thing that can rectify the situation? The actions of the gracious spouse. In my situation, uh, the intervention of Kate, and in Israel's case, God himself. As verse 5 puts it, For your maker is your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. And in both cases, of course, a happy ending ensued. But here's the other parallel with this passage, which is not quite so happy. I don't know if you recall the sermon that Alan Hume uh, preached maybe a month ago. Do you remember that one at 10.30? Talking about the challenges facing churches in general today. And um, he certainly painted a bleak picture of the future of the church in England. And I think there are many parallels too between that and also the state of Israel in exile here in this passage. Because once again, the remnant, and that includes us here today, are called to respond with faith and courage. But we face a situation in which there's far less children and young people than we would like. And where the state of the nation spiritually, to be brutally honest, is quite dire. And yet there is hope. This passage contains hope for them and for us about what God has done, what he will continue to do, and what we can do 
as we cooperate with him to reverse this situation and bring renewal to a barren land. So we're going to tackle this in the order of the three mountains, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Here's a picture, if you don't remember it, hopefully, perhaps. There we go. Can you see there's three mountains there? Um, it's the mountains that I've climbed a few times in Scotland. And, and I use that as an analogy for how, when we're looking at prophecy in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, we need to remember there are three levels of fulfillment. And we're going to follow that structure today. First, thinking about the first level of fulfillment for Israel then, in returning from exile. Then the middle one is the fulfillment in Jesus, the true Israel. What do we learn about him? And then the third is, what do we learn about ourselves as the new people of God, grafted in uh, with the faithful remnant of Israel? What is God saying to us through this passage? So, on with the first of those mountains, those levels of fulfillment. What did God do to restore Israel to something at least approximating to its former glory? And the answer? A miracle. Because that's what the analogy of the barren woman in verse 1 is all about. With a barren womb, there was only one way she was going to have a child. A miracle. God would have to make it happen. Which would, I think, have made Isaiah's readers immediately think of something else in the story of the origin of their nation. Anything spring to mind? Sarah, barren, also too old to have a child. And yet God promised that she would have one that would give birth to a whole nation. She laughed, and yet God did it. Isaac was born, and the entire nation of Israel were descendants of him. Amazing, isn't it? And now, here, in the situation of the exile, God would intervene miraculously. So once again, there would be children in Israel. How did he do it? Well, God's chosen instrument was the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great. If you don't know what happened, he basically took over Babylon, and he had a much uh, nicer approach to uh, the Jews. Uh, we believe that God prompted him to do it. He issued an edict which all the uh, historical sources beyond the Bible uh, confirm, saying that the Jewish people could return home to Jerusalem. The start of Ezra talks about it, and the Jewish people really did shout for joy and burst into song. They celebrated it for years. The children had returned to Israel. The prophecy had been fulfilled. But how was the rest of the passage fulfilled? Well, they really did expand their homes, fulfilling verses 2 and 3, because they dispossessed the Babylonian invaders, or perhaps just walked in after they'd already left. Uh, they would have reclaimed the desolate houses and towns, and I'm sure they would have built bigger homes than the makeshift dwellings that they occupied in Babylon. And then fulfilling verses 4 to 7, they definitely came to realize that they now had nothing to fear. They would no longer be put to shame. They would no longer be disgraced or humiliated. The price had been paid through the exile. They were forgiven, and God confirmed that by helping them to rebuild the temple and the walls under Nehemiah, to rediscover the law under Ezra, and now they knew beyond doubt that they were fully forgiven and God was welcoming them home. So that was the meaning for Israel, the first level of fulfillment. What's the second? Indeed, was there any need for a second? 
Or could we just stop the sermon here? Well, the answer comes from the context of the passage, because what immediately precedes it? Chapters 53 and 52 of Isaiah, and probably most of you know what that's about. It's all about the servant. It's the most dramatic set of prophecies about Jesus in the whole Bible. This suffering servant whose punishment would bring us peace, by whose wounds we would be healed, who after he had suffered would see the light of life and be satisfied. It tells us that Jesus needed to die, why he needed to die, that he would rise from the dead and that actually we would all be beneficiaries. If that's the context, well, then it's quite clear that what Isaiah 54 is saying is that these prophecies here can only be fully fulfilled through what the servant would do in chapters 52 and 53. And think back to two weeks ago in Isaiah 49, we learned there that the critical task of the servant was to be a light to the Gentiles as well as to the Jewish people, bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth including us here. And actually, only when that happened can we say that the promises of verses 2 and 3 in our passage today could be fully fulfilled. Because Israel never again did dispossess other nations. Never again did they uh, take towns in other countries and take possession of them. In fact, they had enough trouble just hanging on to their own towns and country. And a few hundred years later, the Greeks invaded, then the Romans invaded. And of course, they were still there at the time of Jesus. And yet, what the new people of God, with the Gentiles grafted in after Jesus died, rose again, and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, was they took possession of thousands upon thousands of hearts and minds of people all over the known world, Europe, Middle East, Africa, Asia, who heard the good news of Jesus, gave their hearts to him, and so were taken possession of, out of captivity to the devil, and became part of the children of God, people of light. That's what happened, and so surely... That is how those prophecies in the first few verses of Isaiah 54 were ultimately fulfilled. As all of these people became part of God's family. And the reason it could happen was because Jesus, the righteous servant, was punished on the cross, not for his own sins, but for those of you and me. And verse 7 of our passage, in the light of that, surely also describes his destiny. Let me read those words to you. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. How closely they parallel the words of Jesus on the cross that we heard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For it was the true Israel, Jesus, who for a brief moment was abandoned by God on the cross, just as the nation of Israel was abandoned by God 700 years earlier. And he did it so there would no longer be a need for any further punishment, any further sacrifice, any further exile. Jesus had done it all. And we are so grateful for it. So that's the second level of fulfillment then in Jesus. What's the third? How does it affect us? 
Well, I think that comes from that final passage that we heard read from Ephesians 5, because it picks up on that sort of matrimonial imagery, doesn't it, that the Old Testament actually uses a lot, talking about uh, God as the husband of Israel. And this is what Paul said in that passage, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So Israel was portrayed as a bride who'd been unfaithful to her husband God, who had left her and taken her children with him. Well now, in the church, the new people of God are portrayed once again as a bride, but now restored to her wedding day splendor, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, just as any bride on her wedding day would hope to be, with her bridegroom again, God himself, now in the person of Jesus, through whom the New Testament tells us all things were made. So the words of Isaiah 54, verse 5, are fulfilled in him. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. We are the bride of Christ. He is our maker. He is our redeemer. The Lord Almighty is his name. And he's called us back from the wilderness and exile of unbelief and distance and separation from him to the joy and celebration of our union with him as the body of Christ. And here's the thing. It's just so amazing the way these things repeat themselves. We too, like Isaac and like Jesus, have experienced a miracle birth. Jesus, of course, was born to a virgin. And this is what John's gospel says about every person who comes to faith in Jesus. For all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human's decision, nor of human's will, but born of God. Where does that leave us? It leaves us understanding that we are the inheritors of these promises to Israel here in Isaiah 54. And so in them, we can find the principles and the pointers that we need to know how to play our part in actually bringing God's kingdom growth and renewal to this barren land. So what are they? I want to suggest three, three principles that can guide us in playing the part that God calls us to play in restoring our land to him. So the first is this, we need to be expectant. We need to be expectant because that's what the first three verses are actually all about, aren't they? And they give us two specific instructions in putting that into practice. First of all, we're called to praise God, to burst into song, to shout for joy, as verse one put it, because of who God is and because he has done wonderful things in the past and because it raises our expectations and faith that he will continue to do wonderful things in the future. He never changes. He is a God who does miracles. He is a God who loves to draw people to himself, to take possession of new territory as people come to faith in him. And he calls us to join him in doing that. 
dispossessing the devil of men, women, and children, and bringing them into the big family of goodness and light. And for that reason too, we need to put into practice this expectancy by preparing for growth as well. Now we've done that at St. Saviour's, haven't we, by moving to four services, all of which have got room to grow, um, and that's starting to work for us, which is very exciting and encouraging. But actually, we need to understand that it's not just doing that that's important. It's that we too are the means by which that growth can come. As we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit through us to help us boldly and fruitfully share our faith. So my question is, are you expectant of that happening? Are you expecting of it happening generally? And are you expectant of that happening through you? Because if we're not expectant, it's not going to happen through us. So we need to raise our expectancy, our hope, our faith. That's what the Psalms, that's what this passage in Isaiah calls us to do. And when we believe it, then it can happen. So... That's the first principle. We need to be expectant. Here's the second, which relates to it. We need to be willing to engage. And this is the means by which that expectancy can be fulfilled. Now, what does that mean practically? I think it means two things. First of all, that we actually intentionally form proper relationships with people who aren't yet believers. Getting to know them really well. Sharing our lives so that they can see God's character and his love in us and getting to know them so well, spending enough time with them where it becomes perfectly natural that they ask us about our faith and that we're able to share what God's doing in our lives. Now, if, if we think about it, we know that that can happen, but it requires us to prioritize those relationships, to be willing to engage. And yet also, we need to be willing to engage in the spiritual battle Think back to the prayer course, and it finished with that, didn't it? Actually, there is a battle going on there. That's why this kind of language of dispossession and military victory is actually more relevant than it might otherwise seem. Because actually, the devil is clinging on to people, and it's only by engaging in spiritual warfare, by praying into that, claiming the authority of Jesus that captives can be rescued and that people can be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Here's my question. Are you engaging in that warfare yourself or are you just watching it from the sides? Israel didn't take possession of other towns by their soldiers opting out and just expecting God to do all the work. They took possession when their soldiers bravely stepped forward, trusting that God's power would be at work through them. And it's the same for us. If we're not conscious that we're actually taking on the territory of the devil, well, then we're probably not. But we're called to engage with real people's lives in mind of the reality of the spiritual warfare. Let's do it. It's what God calls us to and it's how we can bring renewal to this land. So that's the second principle. We need to be willing to engage. Here's the third. We need to come back home. Now, it was all very well Israel being expectant, being willing to engage in battles if necessary, but they actually needed to be willing to leave Babylon 
and go back home to Jerusalem. And yet they also needed to come back home to God, to their husband who had sent them away, to God himself. And that's exactly what we need to do as well. We need to come back home to God. We don't necessarily need to travel anywhere physically, but relationally, we need to come back to that relationship of intimacy, of marriage, of where we share everything with him and he shares everything with us, where we come back to our bridegroom, our redeemer, Jesus himself. Now just think about what this means. How close and intimate is a marriage? Because that's actually the metaphor that the Bible gives us here about our relationship with God. It's not about a friend that we see every now and again. It's not someone that we turn to when we're in difficulty. It's someone who's living with us 24-7, who we love, who loves us, and whose company we so enjoy, and with whom we trust everything. So, my question is, how's your marriage? How's your relationship with Jesus? Is it functioning in that way? Or are you actually feeling a bit distant? Does it actually need more time being spent together? Does it actually need God to rekindle in you that fire of love for him? And to seek him to give you a new experience and sense of his love and presence with you? Let's be honest. The first thing the devil tries to do is he tries to pull us away from Jesus. And so the first thing we need to do is to come back to him. Well, let's just think about where we might be at this morning. And I'm just speaking out of uh, three situations that I often find myself in. The first is that what's happened is we've been walking on on our own merry way. Jesus was with us. But as we've sort of gone forward, we've gradually lost sight of the fact that he no longer is with us. Maybe we didn't notice he was calling us to go another way. Maybe we just forgot that he was there alongside us, and by the time we realized, he no longer was. That can happen. We drift away. It's not because he's drifted away from us, but we've drifted away from him. It happens. Do we need to come back and hold his hand again? For others, it might be that life's just been really difficult recently. It feels like a barren place, a desolate period in which it's been really hard to grow and to feel his presence, to hear his voice. And where our passion, our love for him has diminished as a consequence, that happens too. We know it does. We all go through times of wilderness, of barrenness. Is that where we're at this morning? Well, what's the answer to either of those things? It's not to beat ourselves up, not remotely. God welcomes us back with open arms, just as the father did the prodigal son. And we can ask him to restore that intimacy, to restore that fire of love again. And then there's others of us who might be in a better place, but we're conscious that we're not actively engaging in that battle, in evangelism, in getting to know people really well so we can share our faith. And we want to invite God to use us powerfully again. 
I've been in that situation lots of times. And it's a case of just saying, God, I've heard your call. I'm going to step forward. I'm going to re-enter the battle. And I'm going to trust that you will hold me fast and that you will do wonderful things through me. So I wonder where you're at this morning. I'd like to invite the band uh, to come up now. And why don't we take a moment, perhaps a minute or so, as they do so, just to listen to what God is saying to our heart right now. How does this passage from Isaiah challenge you? How is your relationship with God, with Jesus? So let's close our eyes and just identify where we feel that relationship is at now. And then I'm going to invite us to respond in a number of ways. So let's just listen and reflect, first of all, on where we're at this morning. Father, thank you that you call us home. Father, thank you that you tell us not to fear. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus to be abandoned for a moment so that the price would be paid so that we could come home to you. And Father, we know how easily we drift away. And Lord, we invite you to draw us home now. Why don't we in a moment of silence just pray whatever prayer of recommitment or commitment for the first time that you want to pray now. Thank you, Father. Thank you that you welcome us home. And now I'd love to invite the prayer ministry team. Uh, if they're here today, any of you have been trained uh, to do that, please do make yourself available here at the front. And we're going to have an opportunity now uh, just to come forward and just invite God to rekindle your love for him. It doesn't matter whether... You're in a good place and you just want to 
renew that commitment and seek to re-enter the battle. Or whether you feel you may have drifted away a little, or whether life's just been hard, or whether you just want to thank him for his love and renew your commitment to him. I will have people here available at the front, and we'd love to pray for you. So this is an opportunity now. Why don't we stand, and we're going to move into a time of response and worship.